Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 17th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that sold off our extra copies of Force of Will months ago. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey everybody, good afternoon. Glad to be back after what feels like a uh, extended hiatus. Um, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, break down uh, what we've got for everybody today after a couple of weeks hiatus. Uh, yeah, this week we have four segments. Uh, our first segment is Top Movers. That's where we'll be looking at some of the cards ha- have seen the largest increases in price in the last week or two. Segment two will be our Cards to Watch. These are some of the cards James and I have our eyes on as potential investments. Segment three will be our Metagame Week in Review. We're going to be talking about Grand Prix Charlotte and Los Angeles, the two modern GPs from last weekend. And segment four, our topic of the week, this week we'll be discussing Eternal Masters. The full spoiler went live about five hours ago now, uh, so a lot to discuss there. Um, take a quick moment to just apologize for the delay in episodes. Uh, we've had a devil of a time getting our schedules coordinated. I know for my part, uh, I lost about a week because the girlfriend was in a car accident. Uh, everyone was fine, none, you know, no worries, but... Uh, suddenly had to go car shopping quite a bit and deal with rental cars and all that stuff and just sucks up all of your time. Yeah, sorry for the scheduling and delays, folks. We'll try to keep things on schedule as we move into the summer. <laughs> okay. Well, that said, uh, let's hop right in on segment one, the top movers. Uh, our first on the list this week is Mesmeric Orb, a card that players that have been around for a long time will remember Pat Chapin having written about years ago. Uh, as an, and picking up on it as an interesting spec target back then. Mesmeric um, Orb is from Mirrodin. Started the week at $7. It's up to about $11.50, $12 right now uh, for like a 60 to 70% increase. This is part of the mill deck that showed up on camera at uh, LA or Charlotte. I forget forget which GP it was specifically. Uh, that, that did fairly well. It didn't even doesn't look like it even cracked the top 32 of either event, I don't think, but it still was looking good at early, late in day one. Uh, people saw it on camera a few times, and, and it's an interesting strategy. Mill has always had a following, and so Mesmeric Orb tacked on some extra gains after already having added, uh, gotten to that $7 price tag sometime, I think it was last year, up from the, I don't know, dollar it was at the time. Yeah, I mean the the blue black mill deck at the end of day one was eight zero and one at GPLA. So, you know, this has been a deck that's been on the fringes of modern for ages. This particular configuration seemed to have, at the very least, a great run at the tournament. Um, it's unclear whether you know jamming three or four hundred games you would have the same result, um, but it's certainly a viable archetype um, in what is looking like a very healthy version of modern where you can play virtually anything you want and still have a shot at uh, taking a top seed. I played this at Detroit, Grand Prix Detroit, about two years ago, actually. It wasn't quite the same list um, <clears throat> because, obviously, SOI wasn't out. Uh, but it was very, it was extremely similar. A friend and I played it. I missed day two on the bubble. He he made it into day two. Um, he was... <laughs> 
he did very well. He got caught on camera thought seizing a uh, Loxodon Smiter out of Brian Kibler's hand. So that's his claim to fame with the deck. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting. It's an interesting deck, and it's fun to play. Um, well, I, I should say it's it's a it's an interesting deck. I'm not sure that it's fun to play because you find that it basically plays like burn, except it's even more linear because your opponent doesn't usually have any sort of life gain, and you don't have your burn can't target creatures. So uh, it's definitely interesting to uh, as a tool in a competitive environment. But this is not the type of deck you want to pick up and play a weekend and a week out at your store. There's just no depth to the strategy. Yeah, it is a relatively shallow um, line of play. Um, there, you know, there there can be some tricky decisions, but it, you're right; it's it's very similar to the kind of uh, play style that a burn player experiences. Yeah, what do you got next for us? Uh, Golgari Grave Troll, um, out of Ravnica and also out of a supplemental printing, um, has bumped from five dollars to almost ten dollars for just about a double up. Um, and this is all based on the growing interest in dredge strategies, um, dredge vine. Um, and uh, associated cards um, have been popping up in a variety of different configurations in Magic Online. They've started to make an impact on you know local tournament scenes and have been seen at at early top tables at major events. Um, people are trying to dial in um, the ultimate dredge list uh, for modern, um, and they are making some progress. So we're seeing some movement on relevant cards. Yeah, in fact, this was on my. Uh card to watch list for the first version of episode 17 that we put together about two and a half weeks ago uh, but we never got to air and now it's too late but uh yeah i mean if you were watching on twitter you would have seen several of us i was certainly not the only one talking about it so i'll be curious to see what the rest of the pieces do uh, vengevine is the other one vengevine and lot with troller both cards that tend to be part of that strategy um vengevine specifically i'm hoping for since i've got a stack of them in my box it hasn't quite panned out yet uh, so if you're out there with a wild hair to buy a bunch of cards, maybe you look at Vengevine. <laughs> uh, next up is Champion of the Parish. Uh, we're looking specifically at the foil copies from Innistrad. Started the week at 5 bucks. They are now up to about 10 for a good double up. Uh, Champion of the Parish was the one drop that got larger every time a human came into play. was a staple of Innistrad standard decks at the time. And it has been increasing in popularity a little bit with the uh, presence of mono-white or white-X human decks starting to show up in modern. Uh, Innistrad, Shadows over Innistrad brought some additional tools for the strategy, and we're starting to see that push into the format a little bit. James, uh, I know you said you saw in, I think, a Star City list recently? Uh, yeah, so their Star City f- uh, featured the Mono White Humans deck tech with Dan Musser um, at GP Indianapolis, uh, or uh, or maybe it was just the uh, Indianapolis Open for Star City, my mistake. Um, this was in uh, mid-May, so like two weeks ago. And uh, it's a Mono White Human deck. Uh, it, it runs Ication Javelineers, of all things. Um, it's running four copies uh, of Champion of the Parish, four copies of Thalia's Lieutenant, which is really ter- the card that out of uh, Innistrad that has turned the strategy on. The ability to get that um, multiple bonus as humans are coming into play is a big deal. Also worth noting that this deck runs three Kithian Hero of Akros, so yet another Planeswalker out of Origins that may see uh, extended modern play beyond its standard career. Um, and on the, the pump, spell side of things it's running brave the elements spectral possession dismember and honor of the pure to both boost the team and clear the way okay interesting interesting uh what's next 
so next on our list, we have uh, Elvish Champion Foils from 7th Edition. 7th, uh, of course, being the core set where the foils are black-bordered, but the rest of the set is white-bordered. Um, they are highly sought-after foils in general, and this particular one has gone from 15 to 30 this week for a double-up. There's just virtually no supply out there, and Elves continues to be a popular tribe, both competitively and in casual circles. Yeah, foil 7th Edition cards, you're probably never going to miss on those. Uh, next up is Graph Digger's Cage from Dark Ascension. Started the week at 450, up to about 10 right now. Uh, for a little over 100%, 120 some odd. Um, this has been gaining in strength, similar to the way we've seen with Stony Silence. Uh, most recently it has been, uh, been relevant again because it acts as a foil to Nahiri decks. It stops her ultimate from going off. It seems like a, uh, thin, layer of protection against a, you know, to play a card against a Planeswalker ultimate in modern, but hey. Um, but it also does catch Collected Company, um, and Court of Calling, the Dredge deck started, they're starting to show up. So basically it's a catch-all, uh, very cheap, very playable sideboard card that manages to hose a lot of different strategies. So we saw that with Stony Silence where it was cheap and you got, you, you know, you aimed at affinity, but you hit a lot of, um, additional targets and Graph Digger's Cage is colorless and cheaper and nails a lot of different stuff. So, you know, the price in that has really started to move. That's also worth noting that we've seen an upswing in Jeskai Nahiri builds where it's good against the Nahiri portion of the deck, but it also, uh, keep in mind that the cage says players can't cast cards in graveyards or libraries, so it also shuts down the Snapcaster side of things. Yeah, um, that's fair. I hadn't thought about that. And it was flexible enough um, facing a field of Abzan Company and Nahiri builds that we started to see some decks running at main deck. In fact, I remember seeing a, a deck on camera that had four main deck. Um, you know, I don't think that's a trend that's likely to last since it's highly metagame dependent. And um, with modern the way it is right now with, say, 20 viable decks, we're going to see these kind of cards fluctuate um, back and forth. I, th I think that if you were in early on copies of this card, now is a great time to be unloading. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. This could pop up uh, in a lot of different places, and I'm not eager to get caught with my pants down on this one. Um, what is next? Uh, so we also had Thousand Year Elixir from Lorwyn, uh, moving from, I'm assuming this is the foil, uh, moving from 22 to $50. Again, uh, just a, an old school foil that's almost a decade old uh, with virtually no supply um, that has a variety of combo applications and applications in EDH. Okay, seems straightforward enough. That one was boring. Why don't you do the next one too? Uh, well, out of the mill deck, we had Sheldock Isle out of Lorwyn moving from $3 to $9 uh, because the mill deck was running multiple copies of that card. Um, I believe it triggers, uh, it's one of the hideaway cards, and it triggers off uh, any player having 20 cards in the graveyard, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 20, I think. Or 20, 20 left in library? Yeah, you're correct, library Travis. It's, yeah, library 20 or less. So it ba you basically get uh, the free, um, you know, uh, kill spell, as it were, in this mill burn deck um, off the top of the aisle. Um, once you've got them almost dead, it, it helps you, you know, close things out. So understandable. Yeah, uh, and I will tell you guys a little personal experience. There is some real demand on this one. I posted seven copies for sale. Um, like Sunday night or Monday morning, and all seven were gone in like 45 minutes. So there are people buying this card at these prices, although it has started to drop on TCG Player already. 
next up is Dreadbore. Uh, we're looking at the foil. Um, again, this is from Return the Ravnica, only printing. Started the week at $4. It is now 14 for a 250% gain. As best as I can tell, this is in reaction to it finding its way into modern in some of the Grixis control lists that were showing up. Um, I feel like Chapin was playing it, although I don't have his list in front of me, so I don't want to say that confidently. But I know that it's starting to show up in modern, and, you know, a $4 foil spell in modern uh, is not going to be $4 for too long. Um, especially if it's going to be part of one of these, like, value-slash-attrition shells, like the John Grixis type of deck where, um, you know, those builds are playable week in and week out. Uh, so congratulations if you managed to have any of these. Uh, I don't know. Do you got any you have any thoughts on this one, James? Well, observing the chatter that was going on amongst the pros, it seemed uh, indefinite whether Dreadbore was even the appropriate answer for Nahiri. The fact that you have to operate at sorcery speed is not ideal in modern um, and it's possible that they should just be running other cards in those slots to try to shut down um, that particular set of interactions. Uh, I'm not confident that this card's going to hold the, the current value in foil, so I think it's a good opportunity to trade out on Puka or to be able to dump um, locally via trade if you can find somebody who thinks that their Grixis deck needs to be upgraded with one of these. Yeah, can never be too upset with getting rid of these things. Um, next up is Steamflogger Boss. <laughs> Uh, okay, uh, we're looking at the non-foil copy here specifically, although I believe the foil also had some movement. Uh, this is from Future Sight. Uh, for those of you who don't know why this is funny, well, uh, I'd rather be you. Uh, Steam Flogger Boss is this really weird card that references contraptions that was printed in Future Sight, and players have been waiting forever for contraptions to show up in Modern, and it never has, and it's sort of become this um, kind of joke card with a bit of a cult following hoping that will that someone someone that they'll finally make cards that produce contraptions and uh when kaladesh was spoiled and people realized that that has sort of like this steampunk-ish uh sensation feel to it uh they bought out steamful auger boss hoping that it would show up in standard i guess i don't quite know what the strategy there was but the price moved from 75 cents to five bucks it's like a 500 some odd percent increase in price but this is uh, completely unsustainable. It's probably $2 by now anyways. Um, so just just a totally goofy buyout that means absolutely nothing. Yeah, silly, silly, silly. I mean, this is if, if this appears and in Kaladesh, and it, there's no reason to believe that it would, just because we're going to an artifact-driven plane doesn't mean that contraptions are, are going to be brought. Even if they did, this would be a fall set rare, and as such, it will end up at $2. So um, driving the price up to five doesn't get anybody anywhere. Even at 75 cents, you would have had trouble unloading it too. It's not like the original art is spectacular or anything. The future site frames are a little wonky um, versus the new frames. So it's not like they look great in a deck. Um, it has no modern applications unless contraptions ends up being a crazy big thing. Um, I guess some more background might be appropriate here. If you weren't playing during the Future Sight era, Future Sight included a bunch of cards that were "quote unquote" future shifted, which meant that they were cards that were going to that were going to make sense and show up in future Magic sets that wouldn't necessarily may may, and several have over to, over the years. Um, Steamflogger Boss in particular is basically a hill giant. It's th three and a red for a three three. And it has the following very mysterious text. Other rigor creatures you control get plus one, plus zero, and have haste. If a rigor you control would assemble a contraption, it assembles two contraptions instead. 
So there has never been another card that references rigors or contraptions. Um, there's no sense of what that might, how that might play out uh, in standard this fall, if, if, if and when it does. Um, definitely the kind of card, if you can trade this out anywhere near $5, by all means do so. Um, I'm doubting that many of our listeners have a bunch of these lying around since it's not the kind of thing they should have been chasing. Um, but uh, say la vie, we'll see what Kaladesh brings. Yeah, it would be it would be something. Although I thought I said something on Rosewater's Tumblr that virtually confirmed the absence of contraptions in Kaladesh. Although I didn't quite understand the reasoning behind it, uh, just that that comment had been made. So don't uh, don't hold your breaths if you're a fan of contraptions. I mean, it's imp- it's important to note that we've already been to Kaladesh. Kaladesh was one of the featured planes in Magic Origins last summer, um, where we saw Pia and Kira Nalar, who are you know Chandra's parents from Kaladesh, and all of the other cards that were related to Chandra were also uh, Kaladeshian. So there was no indication there that we're dealing with contraptions. No reason to believe that we suddenly will be this fall. That, that is true. Although I'm going to nitpick here. And that if you ask, I don't know, Rosewater, whoever it is, is in charge of this type of thing, if we've been to Kaladesh, they will say no. They said that Origins was like a look back in time and that we didn't actually go to Kaladesh. We just, I don't know, thought about it, but they are they were insistent on that point. Yeah, I mean, that that does seem to be semantics. I mean, the, the cards that were related to Chandra were clearly um, located on Kaladesh. All the backgrounds were Kaladeshian imagery. Um, Thopters and all of the Thopter-related cards, including Hangerback Walker, are clearly located on Kaladesh. And though it might have been in the past, um, you know, there, there's no reason to believe that the the themes of the set are going to be much different, given that the a lot of the imagery has already been uh, released based on the art book. Um, uh, they're putting out these big, beautiful art books for all the new planes these days. And the one for Kaladesh, is, a lot of the imagery has already been released and seems to be consistent with what we saw in Origins. Yeah, yeah, and all of that is absolutely correct. All right, let's wrap this up. Last card on our list is Belbs. I think it's Belbs. I think it's Belby. Belby? Is it really Belby? It's such a goofy name for such an evil character. Um, Belby's Portal, the foil from Nemesis, started the week at $4. It is now $30 uh, for a 650% increase. Um, as best as I can tell, this is just a kind of a low supply of an old foil, um, kind of, you know, useful in EDH. The $30 is probably not uh, a real number. I'm guessing that when copies start to sell again, it'll be closer to like the 20, 15 to $20 range, not 30. Um, so unless you've got some insight here that I don't have, I don't have much to say other than low supply old foil. Yeah, I, I think that's all it is. And uh, we see these kinds of buyouts on a regular basis. Somebody trips over a card that has relatively low supply, has limited applications in casual and EDH, and they pull the trigger on the last six copies, and away we go. Yeah. Now, and if memory serves me, this is what this is a lot a lottery, and I think Hannah and God, who somebody else is escaping from Belby's headquarters through this portal i think i don't remember i just read the stupid story about this and now i can't remember it and it upsets me <laughs> all right fair enough so moving on to our cards to watch this week um let's break down the uh our picks of the week yeah well you're uh, you're first on the list so i'm gonna let you get started all right so my first card this week is a play on the fact that we uh, have confirmation that commander 2016 is going to be all about four color commanders which kicks the door wide open on having multicolor decks in commander 
um, and three and four color creatures showing up in commander decks much more frequently. Um, a card that seems to primed to benefit from that would be Dragon Arch out of Apocalypse, uh, a very old card. It's an artifact uh, that casts five to get into play, but then on subsequent turns, uh, for two and a tap, you get to put any multicolored creature into play from your hand. So anything from Progenitus to your commander if it, uh, or um, your backup commanders, as it were, that are floating around in your deck, any of the different multicolored creatures that people will be experimenting with this fall. The card is in relatively low supply. It's available at around $1.75. I'm targeting it to hit $6 this year for about a 250% increase. Um, foils are out there around $5, and there are very, very few of those. I picked up eight uh, just before the broadcast when I was doing my research um, on the basis that I think the foils easily hit 10 to 15. Um, there will be enough people curious to try this card out um, in a format where it was previously not too exciting um, that I think we'll see some play on it. Yeah, this is a, a great card. In fact, I looked at it on your list and then I hopped over to Puka Trade and put one on my want list because uh, I, I completely forgot this card existed. And with the, um, the forthcoming renewed interest in these heavily multicolored decks, uh, I can definitely see this spiking. You know, five color decks have been available since, you know, for, for a very long time at EDH, but there was never like a push towards them. But we have seen this commander, this yearly fall commander series really. Uh, lead to an, uh, a large influx of players building decks of those sorts, which is not too surprising. So uh, there's going to be a strong drive to build these multicolor commander decks, uh, these four-color commander decks this fall, emphasizing multiple colors in a way that we have not seen in EDH basically ever. And one of the other things to keep in mind here is that uh, it would make some reasonable amount of sense that one of the uh, commanders uh, will be a dragon. Um, that deck would be a perfect place to finally reprint Dragon Arch because it's never been reprinted since Apocalypse, so 15 years ago or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And so the non-foils, you know, may have a brief window to succeed and then get knocked down by their appearance in the set. The foil version, though, is a very safe bet because though we've had foils confirmed for Commander 2016, they're confirmed to all be multicolored creatures. So given that we know that that's the case, the Dragon Arch foils look uh, very, very good. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Uh, okay, my first card is uh, Gavany Township. Um, I've got a confidence level on this of uh, six to seven. I'm looking at about a mid-term mid -term time length, so probably maybe three to six months. Uh, this is from Innistrad. Uh, price is currently five dollars. Uh, I'm looking at this to hit somewhere in the ten to twelve range uh, for about you know probably you probably get about six or seven bucks on these copies. Um, Gabony Township has been hanging around in modern for quite some time, and uh, even a few years ago, it was an interesting card, but we were too close to Innistrad for it to really be uh, profitable. But since then, uh, Innistrad is now quite a few years past. Uh, which is hard for a player like me to remember, or to, to hard sometimes difficult for a player like me uh, to realize. Um, but it has been growing in modern. Green is a really big part of the format right now, surprisingly. It's all over the place. Pretty much any deck that isn't Jund runs Gavney Township in some quantity. Uh, it was excellent in Matt Nass's green-white tokens deck. 
this past weekend, which I'm sure uh, will only help its its price point. And you know, given what we've seen with so many of the other uh, modern lands, I mean, look at Horizon Canopy. Uh, there's definitely room for a heavily played utility land like Gabney Township to pick up a couple extra dollars. Uh, remember, Ink Moth Nexus was only you know five or six bucks, and then suddenly it was thirty. Uh, so. Even if $5 seems like a fair price right now, it could be 10 to 15 and also still feel like a fair price. So uh, I think there's a lot of room on Gabney Township. Not a lot of room. There is room on Gabney Township to profit, and it's very uh, reliable, I feel. Yeah, there's not a tremendous amount of copies on the internet right now. It's run as a two or three of an absent company builds, which is kind of the de facto best deck in the format right now. Um, but more importantly, as you said, the green-white tokens deck that's been doing very well in standard has kind of uh, jumped over into modern um, where it's run as a four of. And if we're going to have multiple decks doing reasonably well in that Abzan sphere of color configurations, um, and they're all running three or four copies of Gavany, then yeah, they can definitely see some appreciation. Okay, what have you got next for us? Um, I'm bringing back a pick from about... 10 shows ago where I called out Oath of Nisa foils um, out of Oath, um, currently available at around $6 as almost certainly headed north of 10 uh, down the road. This is a, a card that is consistently showing up in modern decks. It was true two months ago when it was uh, a couple weeks after release. Um, it's still true today. Every, every week I'm seeing a new deck that's running three or four copies of this thing in modern as a way to kind of approximate uh, the mana fixing um, threat uh, density um, uh, search up. Uh, facilities that blue cards have traditionally held in modern and green doesn't have a ton of good options certainly not ones that are at a single mana um, and the fact that it happens to have the side benefit in casual circles of allowing you to play uh, super friends style planeswalker decks where um, you can cast kind of any planeswalker you want because oath of nisa fixes your mana for that um, leads me to believe that these foils cannot stay under 10 for, for a tremendous amount of time. I'd say six months to a year out, they, they, they've got to start making their ramp up. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's uh, faulty reasoning. I think we talked about this before, and I thought it was a good idea then as well. Um, cool. So what do you have next for us? Yeah, my next card is Void Winnower from Battle for Zendikar. Uh, I'm looking, this is probably a long-term pick. I'm like a seven on this one. Uh, it's like two bucks right now, and I could easily see this climbing into the $8 range, um, somewhere around maybe where uh, Sponsor of Ulamog or uh, It That Betrays was before that one got reprinted. It's just an extremely unique effect. I, okay, extremely unique is uh, redundant. It is a unique effect. I don't think there's, there's anything like this out there in Magic for the most part. Uh, it's an Eldrazi, so you still have the Eldrazi mana base to support it, whether that's constructed or casual. Yeah, it's cheap as heck. Uh, it's close to bulk mythic prices. I mean, we don't really see mythics much lower than a dollar, a dollar to two dollars for the most part. So two bucks is pretty much about as low as you can get. And there's already some level of demand because if there was no demand, this card actually would be in the dollar range. So there's some amount of people who already want this card. We've seen it pop up once or twice, and I think a few sideboards of ramp decks. Um, so there, there's definitely some app, some people out there who are already interested in it. Uh, it's only going to get better and more, more popular over time as copies, uh, kind of disappear from the internet. Uh, people will start to put it in their commander decks because it randomly hoses like half the things people are trying to do in the game. Uh, and it's not the type of card you're going to see pop up again very regularly. Uh, again, look at 
something like Get the Betrays or Sponsored Ulamog, one of which was not reprinted and one of which took years. So, you know, this is going to be a slow gainer, but uh, I would, you know, every time you place an order, see if they have any copies in stock, if they're cheap, toss them in your cart. And then, you know, two or three years down the road, you've got a bunch sitting around and the card's like seven or eight bucks and you can buy a list them for $5. And, you know, you made, made more than double your money for not much effort. I'll tell you the inflection point, I think, finally sets this off somewhere down the road. It's going to be when they print the companion creature to this that shuts down mm. odd casting costs. Um, that's, mm. going to be, that's going to be the point where somebody go, all the Johnnies go, oh, wow, that's super fun. I want to shut them out of the game completely. And a bunch of people start trying to build casual decks and go back to try to find this mythic. And it jumps from $2 to $5 overnight. Yeah, that would be interesting. Or if um, somebody figures out a way to make all mana costs even or something like that, you know, which, which is essentially the same thing, but yeah, you know, kind of get that two card combo and then it ends up in a budget brew someplace and then it's no longer budget and the circle of ice continues. Not to mention the card is actually gorgeous. The art's amazing. Um, and in foil, it looks fantastic. Uh, I mean, this is like a massive Eldrazi popping up out of a portal uh, over top of a volcano or something. And the, the detail on the art is not justified unless you've seen it up close. That is pretty cool looking. Um, all right, so my uh, final pick of the week is Master of Waves, uh, the mythic creature out of Theros that makes a, a million elemental tokens. Um, confidence level on this is high. Give it an 8 out of 10. Timelines mid to long. Um, people are continuously um, ignoring this card for speculative opportunities, and I just don't get it. Um, Merfolk just won another major modern tournament at GPLA. It's a four of, it's a mythic, it's a popular deck. Um, the chances of this sliding out of the four slot are extremely low because being able to get the, the level of uh, uh, swing um, that you get from dropping this on turn four in the Merfolk deck um, from some other card they print in the near future is, is exceedingly low. Uh, possibility just on the basis that merfolk are very rarely in this casting cost zone and it was only it only ever uh, hit the scene in the first place because we were in uh, a format in a context where um, everything was based on nykthos uh, and the ability to leverage multiple pips uh, of the the same color in play so i think that master waves occupies a very unique and durable slot in the merfolk deck um, it's currently available at $4. I could easily see it hitting $10 in the next couple of years as supply dwindles um, for a 150% gain. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's uh, unfair at all. And I think our buddy Corbin Hosler would probably be chiming in that he agrees with you as well, although his motives may not be uh, pure. I mean, a couple of years ago, Murfolk was considered fringe. People were constantly, you know, the guys on Corbin's cast over... Uh, were you know making fun of him for for playing the deck and championing it, but the reality is that this deck has top aided multiple modern tournaments in the last couple of years um, through a variety of meta games. Um, it was one of the only decks that seemed reasonably durable against the Eldrazi during Eldrazi Winter before Eye of Ugin was banned, um, and all of that adds up to me that this is a enduring uh, archetype that's not going anywhere. Yeah, you know, my personal feelings about whether it's good or not aside, I agree with you that it will be enduring, which is all it really needs. Um, all right, so uh, my last one for the week is Court of Calling. This is a long-term pick, but I'm pretty strong on it. I am an 8, possibly even a 9 on this guy. Uh, looking at the M15 edition, but uh, the Ravnica one works too. 
This has climbed to about $10 from a low of like three and change. Uh, that's where it is today is 10 bucks. So it's already seen some gains, but I, I, I think this could easily, no, I think this could definitely climb to uh, 20 or even possibly higher over the course of a year or two. Players who were playing prior to M15 will remember Court of Calling was like a 40 or $50 card at one point, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, so there's definitely a price memory for this uh, in that range. And this is just getting more and more popular and modern. Uh, uh, Collected Company, I feel like, has actually made Court of Calling more popular because now there's sort of eight ways to kind of cheat these creatures into play. So, um, you know, you look at all of these green decks and uh, frequently Court of Calling and Collected Company are like 90% of the non-creature spells. You know, they'll play four chord, four company, and then that's it. Um, and it just, it's so much versatility. And again, it's another one of these toolbox cards. It gets better with every creature they print because uh, you can just keep going and getting them. Um no matter what it is, you can just you can just cord for it. And every time you see two card combos pop up, like Spike Feeder, Archangel of Thune, Court of Collins utility especially increases because it gives you uh, a reliable way to go seek those out. So um, I, I definitely think that this is going to continue to be a powerful part of modern strategies going forward. I don't expect to see it again uh, in the next year or two. And if it continues on the way it has been, uh, this is definitely in the in the running for a good double up in price. Yeah, I mean, I continue to be on board with Cord. Uh, a few weeks back, I called out the foils at $20 to hit 40. They're already uh, sinking up around 25. Um, and at, for all the reasons you listed, we're gonna continue to see motion on Cord of Calling. Um, uh, the core decks are very well positioned in the format. They seem to be durable. Um, they haven't been easily answered by the metagame despite uh, good solutions being on, on hand. Um, so yeah, I think we're going to continue to see this momentum. I forgot you had put the foil on your list a week or two ago. That was a good choice. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one last thing I want to point out in our, uh, uh, cards to watch segment, which is a little different than normal. Um, our friends over at Cardamajigs, and that is C-A-R-D-A-M-A-J-I-G-S, a little bit of a mouthful, um, uh, are, are a team out of Ottawa that puts together uh, tokens for Magic players of all different types. They've got some that are uh, based on cosplay. They've got some that are vector-based. Um, and they've been doing some really cool 8-bit tokens as well. Well, this week they, they launched a new series of tokens that's gotten a lot of uh, attention from people that have seen the uh, little video clips that been floating around on Twitter and in social media. Um, they've got lenticular-based um, uh, tokens that uh, for goblins, spirits, thopters, and zombies so far, but I'm sure there will be many more given the popularity that uh, I think these are likely to attain. Um, uh, you have these little animated versions of tokens that look like 8-bit video gaming from the early 90s. Um, they're pretty fantastic. You're going to want to check them out over at cardamajigs.com. You can pick them up for $2.50 a piece, and uh, I think it's some of the best money you're going to spend this month on Magic. I, uh, I am not positive you spelled that correctly in your description, but I will have it in the show notes regardless so people can find it. <laughs> yeah. But they are very cool. I did see a little video of them. It was quite nifty. Yeah, cardamajigs.com, folks. You need, when you play with them, you'll have to, like, put put them under like a over a pencil or something so you can easily flicker it while it's in play and you can see the animation because if it lays flat on the table it's a little harder to see yeah these things are dead sexy i'm gonna start working on some sound effects for when i'm using them 
<laughs> All right, let's uh, let's hop over. Oh, did you want to talk about? You got a card on your cell watch here? Is oh, that yeah. what There's a card I've been doing very well on this month that I've been getting out of as fast as I possibly can. Um, I bought a whole bunch of copies of Nahiri, both for cash and via Puka Trade, at the ten to eleven dollar mark. And uh, as of this afternoon, the near mint copies on TCG Player seem to be down around the twenty five dollar mark, but Puka Trade has not caught up. So you've had an opportunity all week to be getting out on Nahiri uh, at about plus 300% gain for 3,600 Puka points or about $35 uh, US, and uh, that's just way too good to be leaving on the table. Um, the card is a uh, likely to be a modern staple. Um, it's not clear if it's Tier 1 or Tier 2. Um, I don't think it really matters. Um, if you were in at 10, get out uh, over 30, and you'll be smiling all the way. I could not agree with you more. If I had any Nahiris, I would be selling them too. Okay, let's move on to segment three, our metagame week in review. This week we are looking at Grand Prix Charlotte and Grand Prix Los Angeles, both modern events. Uh, James, what out of these uh, events kind of jumped out at you? What caught your attention? I think the primary theme uh, worth drawing attention to is that modern is in a very healthy place. Um, you know, we've got a plethora of viable decks that seem to be capable of making top eight. We've seen at least 15 or 20 of them show up at tournaments over the last month. In Charlotte, uh, from top to bottom, we had Ad Nauseam, Domri Zoo, Four Color Kiki Cord, uh, Jund, uh, uh, Knight of the Reliquary Retreat to Coralhelm deck, Death's Shadow Zoo, Jund, and Scapeshift. I mean, that's about as diverse as you could possibly hope for the, a format. Um, like modern at GPLA, similarly, um, we had equal amounts of diversity with almost a completely different deck set. This uh, GPLA was taken down by Merfolk, as we said earlier, and also in the top eight was Affinity, Bantel Drazi, Jund, Affinity, Absan, Grixis Control, and uh, a revised version of Urzatron. Um, I believe in the hands of Joe Lissette, who was running uh, four. Karn uh, in that build of the deck, which is a, a, an interesting shift from the one-of copy we usually see. Of Karn? Yeah. Karn Liberated? Yep. Uh, I mean, don't have an Urza decks run 4x Karn for, like, ever? I, I've seen anything from, from 1 to 3, typically, um, but 4 Karn seemed like uh, more than the usual. Feel free to shout at us in the show notes if I'm wrong. Um other stuff that jumped out, though, the Bant Eldrazi deck in GPLA um, proves out that Eldrazi are not dead and modern. Um, all of the picks we've been listing last few shows were highlighting uh, underrated uh, regular and foil copies of cards like Thought Not Seer and Reality Smasher, Matter Reshaper, and Eldrazi Displacer um, still stand. Um, uh, various versions of Eldrazi um, continue to make top eights in modern, um, and you should be picking some of those cards up for the long haul. Um, we also see uh, Ancestral Vision finally top eight an event. Uh, a lot of pros have been writing this card off as just not good enough for modern, um, but here we find it uh, in its kind of default configuration as a four of in Grixis Control, so certainly happy to see that go down. Um, I picked up on on both on both of those as well as uh, seeing Bant Eldrazi again. Uh, it, this, these are not the first modern events since the ban list, uh, but they are like some of the biggest ones since then. And the see Eldrazi show up in the top eight again means that uh, the strategy is here to stay, and uh, that means Displacer and Thought Not Seer. I think going forward are going to be really interesting 
uh, worth keeping an eye on because those are 4x in like every build, every time. I, I like those a lot. And I also noticed that the Ancestral Visions poking in on Grixis Control there. Um, and I think there were a few other Grixis Control lists floating around in the top 32 of both events that were also playing uh, some amount of Ancestral Visions for the most part. Uh, so, well, it hasn't been quite as widespread as I think some of us, myself included, expected during the uh, unbanning. Uh, it is certainly at least finding some home here in Modern. Also interesting, out of Charlotte, we had the Knight of the Reliquary Bant um, creature deck that ran uh, Collected Company, and I think one copy of Court of Calling, if I'm not mistaken, but three copies of Retreat to Coral Helm, which was a, a combo card with Knight of the Reliquary, um, where you end up with an infinitely or extremely large knight um, on the attack. Uh, I called the foils out on Coral Helm several shows back, um, and I still think that they're a reasonable pickup um, at current levels based on the fact that this, you know, this deck continues to make inroads into modern. Um, we see multiple copies of Nahiri across some of these decks, um, Kalidus showing up, uh, justifying his price tag, and Tireless Tracker showed up in the Domri Zoo deck, um, a card that has also showed up in Lands decks in Legacy, um, and maybe a foil pickup that people should be eyeing as well. Hmm. Yeah, the, the Bant Night Retreat Night, Night Retreat Coral Helm Night, I don't know what they want to call it yet, uh... It's curious to see that popping up because I remember when that combo showed up, everyone was like, oh, this is another one of those combos that uh, looks cool during spoiler season but ends up being garbage. And it's like, oh, no, actually, this is this has been doing well and it's been doing well for a long time, even though it's not like extraordinary. It's still, you know, top eight and GP. So it's, it's more than nothing. I can't figure out where the money is to be made on this. And they basically took a deck that already existed and just shoved... Retreat the Coral Helm in it, which is uncommon from a current set, so I am not exactly sure where the money is in this deck. It might might be in the Night of the Reliquaries, but those have already gone up. Uh, I mean, Voice of Resurgence already spiked a while ago. I mean, hey, there's a there's a Gavin Township in there. Uh, so it's it's tough to find ways in this build to profit, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, for me at least. The other thing is if you're if you're already holding Voice of Resurgence, Noble Hierarch, Birds of Paradise, Scavenging News, Eternal Witness. Uh, Kasali Pride Mage, um, Spellskite, Tarmogoyf, Kitchen Finks, Path, Cord, and Collected Company, you may as well just be playing Abzan Company since that the number of combos and that ver- that configuration of the deck um, are probably uh, better to have running on table than the Retreat to Coral Helm co- combo. We're not too far from just playing Abzan with Knight of the Reliquary yeah. and Retreat shoved in. Yeah, exactly. And it's not clear to me that that combo is in any way better than the two or three different ways that Malira Company can typically go off. Yeah, I have. I I, I can't speak to the uh, the actual play gameplay value of the Retreat combo over anything else. I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, you know what else jumped out at me is uh, most of the Jund lists I saw, almost all of them, not all of them, were running to Kaleidos. So I know that uh, we had some mixed feelings about that card a while ago, but it seems to be making its uh, stabilizing its position in the format. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I don't. I don't need any further com- convincing um, that Kalidus will earn his keep. Um, I was down on the card when it was initially released, um, on the assumption that it was a standard only card. But uh, Nick Bekvar, uh was shouting at me constantly on Twitter that I was wrong, and uh, proves out that he was indeed correct as were several other people that were big on the card. Um, fortunately, I did manage to get in on it when it was around 15 or $16, um, when I was finally convinced. So I do have a few uh, copies lying around that are worth cashing out on. 
Um, foils, I think, will continue to rise. Um, Oath was a relatively small set, probably held back a little bit by Eldrazi Winter in terms of sales. And so I think those foils are you know, going to see some consistent, safe growth for the next three to five years. It's always a bummer when Nick is right. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I did see, I did. I also saw Tireless Tracker show up in what they're calling Domri Zoo. Uh, although I don't know if one copy of Domri Rod counts as calling it Domri Zoo. But we are seeing Tireless Tracker in Modern, and I know Sam Black played it in his Teamer deck a while ago. So that's another one, another recent card that may be uh, finding its legs in Modern and hanging on for a little longer than we might have anticipated in the first place. Yep, agreed. Okay, well, uh, unless you've got anything left here, we can move on to segment four. Uh, anything else you yeah. want to share with us? Uh, I think the, the takeaway there is that modern is extremely diverse. I think one thing that's worth pointing out in a situation like this, though, um, is that it's actually, I think, harder to make money um, in a diverse format uh, than it is in a format that is relatively tightly contained. If you have a format where four decks are clearly the dominant ones and say a lot of those decks are running abrupt decay, it's much more likely for you know a rare from a recent set to have a strong chance at growth in that scenario than it is in a, in a format where the metagame seems to be shifting week after week. Um, in this kind of scenario, I think that what you need to be watching for is hot new things that appear on camera that may create runs on cards um, that have previously been unexplored or undervalued. Um, you know, the, the cards like, uh, you know, Master of Waves, despite me calling it out, seem to be relatively resistant to um, good finishes driving value just on the basis that not everybody is going to jump on the deck because it's not the best deck. It's a deck that did well this week. And so people don't feel the need to switch from the thing that they're already playing to the thing that did well until they start seeing it do well consistently beating their own deck. Um, so just something for people to consider. Yeah, I have similar feelings. You know, my modern strategy has always been keep, look for the fringe combo decks, the weird stuff, or the combos that suddenly appear with new cards printed in new sets, and uh, and try and get in on those early. You know, stuff like uh, the Crucial Palette and Cheerios deck is a perfect example of something, you know, really off the beaten path, not something you'd expect, um, and to look for opportunities there because so many of these decks um, are... You know, like I said, with the night, the night Coralhelm deck uh, shows up all the time, or not doesn't show up all the time, but all those cards are staples, and it's really it can be difficult to profit on the staples because they're well known and they bounce around in different decks, but they're still all over the place. So you kind of got to look to the stuff that's new and fresh and is going to get people excited, and those are are to me um, in modern where you where you can profit. But there there are a few strategies. Yeah, I mean, con compare like you said, the night deck where there's a few new cards that are are have been under the radar versus something like blue black um, mill where everybody was. A Aware that there was, you know, some version of the deck floating around, but nobody was really taking it seriously. To see it do well on camera, to go eight zero one on day one and get a bunch of camera time, drove the prices up of Mesmeric Orb and multiple other staples. I mean, Glimpse the Unthinkable not being reprinted in in uh, uh, Eternal Masters means that that card is probably going to see some strong growth with any amount of activity um, related to the Blue Black Mill deck. Yeah, yeah, agree, agree. Okay, segment four, topic of the week: Eternal Master spoilers. The full set spoiler went live, uh, well, it's a little later now, so about six hours ago. Um, so, you know, a lot of cards were printed, a lot of interesting stuff in there. Also, what's interesting is what didn't show up. What are your initial reactions to the full spoiler, James? Well, it seems to be playing out similarly to how I imagined it would. They certainly made sure... Um, it, this very much feels like a set that's been crafted to address 
prior complaints while still sticking with the core game plan. They want to give us cards that allow us to get some attractive entry points into some decks um, in the relevant formats, and this was clearly focused on, you know, legacy, vintage, EDH, and, you know, the casual player who's been around a long time that just wants to own some of these cards at a more reasonable price point or with better art. Um, all of those goals seem to have been been achieved. We didn't get everything that we wanted, but that makes sense because they've got to hold some of those bullets back for future uh, guns. And there's also um, Modern Masters 3 almost certainly next summer with a triple GP and what have you. And so a lot of the you know missing modern focused cards um, make sense to see excluded here. Um, I was a little surprised to not see Rashad in port. Um, that certainly would have been a nice boost to the EV. Um, and especially for Magic Online, um, that's a big miss because it's far and away one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive cards on Magic Online. It's the most expensive card, and it's even like 50 bucks more than Black Lotus, I think I read earlier today. Yeah, that makes sense, because it went from... I was buying in on some copies when it became apparent about 24 hours ago that it wasn't going to be included um, at about 140 tickets, and I think they're up to about 180 today, um, whereas Lotus has languished at 130 for a long time. And I actually... It's funny that you make that comparison, because I exited out of two Lotuses where I'm down 100 tickets each because I bought them around 220 cool. um, in the early days of my Magic Online investing where I was clearly making poor decisions um, to move them into ports, and that certainly helped me to gain a little ground there. Um, you know, I guess the Magic Online players are just going to have to grin and bear it for a while longer. It's possible that we'll get some kind of vintage <laughs> master set next year, um, you know, next summer uh, online only that will plug some of those holes. Well, I will tell you that uh, Rishadon Poor is one of the three cards that sit out to me. Oh, those are my dogs. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my organic doorbells. Um, Rishadon Poor stands out to me as one of three uh, glaring omissions. And none of these three cards were cards that I really expected to be there, but that the market will react to their absence uh, anyways. And that's Rishadon Poor, as well as uh, Grove of the Burn Willows and Horizon Canopy. And uh, those are three cards that have been uh, very uh, instrumental in Legacy and for Grow the Burn Rolls and uh, Horizon Canopy Modern as well. And the fact that they're not there uh, means that I would expect to see some upward growth on those prices, especially as well. Um, Horizon Canopy, especially, uh, you you know, we have Conspiracy 2 coming later this year, but Horizon Canopy is terrible in a multiplayer format. Uh, Aaron Forsythe had this comment. Uh, a long time ago about uh, uh, EDH commander. And he said, you know, EDH is not about, um, it's not about resource management, which is what magic's about. It's about resource acquisition and multiple multiplayer games are really about building the resources you have to work with just in more and more mana. And, you know, conspiracy is a multiplayer format and horizon canopy works directly against that. You know, it sacrifices your land. It's a very one-on-one -on -one competitive card, not a fun. Everybody let's enjoy ourselves kind of card. Um, so I don't think, you know, you could possibly expect to see Grove of the Burn Willow show up in Conspiracy, but Horizon Canopy and Rishadon Ford do not look like conspiracy candidates to me, which means I have no idea when the next time we're going to see these is. And we could be looking at $200 Rishadon Ford's and $150, $100 Horizon Canopies uh, within the year. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not clear to me what the ultimate ceiling on Horizon Canopy is. Um, I I know that I exited on some Japanese copies earlier this year at a number I'm I'm very comfortable with. It's worth pointing out that uh, exploration was included in the last conspiracy, and it had almost no applications in the limited format that it was uh, a part of. Um, so I don't think it's impossible for them to throw a bone people's way in that set, you know, just a, a printing that helps alleviate some pressure. Horizon Canopy would be high on my list of potential targets there, um, but I certainly agree with your logic that it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't have any reason to be there um, from the multiplayer draft format perspective. It would really just, you know, be a, a throw-in uh, at Rare or Mythic. Um, it's also possible it just gets saved as one of the bullets in the Modern Masters 3 gun for next summer, and they just let the price drive um, in the meantime. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's very possible. Um, you know, my, my thinking, you know, exploration might not have been great in Conspiracy, but it wasn't uh, detrimental to the person casting it, whereas Horizon Canopy almost feels like uh, you fall behind when you use it. Um you know, the real question with me with Eternal Masters, and this is sort of like the broad overarching idea of the set, is uh, how much is there? And this is really going to drive so much um, about the prices is we don't really, we kind of have an understanding now um, that there's just not a lot out there. And from what I've heard uh, is slants somewhere in between the first Modern Masters run and the second Modern Masters run. Uh, and we all know the first Modern Masters was pretty limited. I don't remember seeing basically any packs at MSRP. Uh, I'm sure they were out there. Whereas the Modern Masters 2, I think you might even still be able to get an MSRP. Uh, so we're going to land somewhere in the middle for quantity. And it's really going to be, uh, that is going to drive how these prices across the board uh, react to this printing. Um, you know, you look at something like Monocrypt, which has this huge price tag coming into this. You know, how many more are going to be added to the market? Uh, I know Jim Casale, one of the other writers for MTG Price, thinks that the price is barely going to budge, where while well, I'm hearing people talking about the price on Monocrypt getting halved. Um, so that's sort of like this whole, the, the big question right now is how much are the prices going to change based on the quantity, which we kind of only have this sort of nebulous feel for. Yeah, Cliff Daigle on our team has a, uh... Uh, an article up called Eternal Masters the Mythics that I think has some pretty reasonable um, price targets for most of the mythics that he uh, was aware of by the, when he published yesterday. Um, you know, everybody, there's certainly nothing to complain about with this set um, overall. We're getting reprintings of Balance with Great Art. We've got Jace the Mind Sculptor um, helping alleviate price pressure on one of the key blue cards in Legacy. A new printing of Vampiric Tutor, Sneak Attack. We've got fantastic new art for Force of Will. Um, we've got Char Belcher art, which I love and you don't seem to. Um, <laughs> Argothian Enchantress, um, Natural Order. Um, you know, a, a very solid list uh, of, of great uh, staples that are that have a history um, with the within the gaming community associated with Magic, that are important in key decks in both Legacy and Vintage, um, and definitely in casual circles. The limited format from my first impressions, looking over the set list this morning, looks reasonable. Um, I think it could be a good format. Um, I would guess that it's better than Modern Masters two and maybe close to Modern Masters one. I think it's going to feel something between drafting Modern Masters one and drafting uh, like Legacy Cube online. Um, it's you know there's a lot of interesting arch archetypes that will be fun to play and a lot of old school cards that you know it's going to be the first time we've been casting in quite some time. Um, probably for our listeners, one of the important discussions here, um, if not the most uh, interesting, 
um, set of points we can make is about the expected value of the set. Um, I haven't run the numbers yet. Um, I did a brief sketch, napkin sketch, this morning, um, and my guess is that the price of boxes given unlimited supply would be very close to MSRP. Um, I have a feeling that the ESP is, is the MSRP is relatively uh, tightly mapped against the predicted cost of a box, um, which uh, again underscores for me just how ridiculous it is whenever Wizard says they don't pay attention to the secondary market. I think that's absolutely part of their calculation, and it's silly to say otherwise. Um, now, as you said, what really matters here is how much of this product is actually available. Having talked to a bunch of different dealers as I was trying to track down my own supply, um, the impression that I got was that the allocations at the dealer level, at the LGS level, are very similar to Modern Masters 2013, um, significantly lower than 2015, and that the real question mark is how much supply is going to be pushed through the distributor network. These are wholesaling companies that can sell to the dealers indirectly as opposed to the relationship that the dealers have with Wizards where they're allocated a specific number of cases. Through a distributor, it's really a question of how much the distributor uh, is interested in servicing any particular uh, store that they're selling to based on their overall allocation and how motivated they are to clear out the product from their shelves. Part of the ability that, uh, or part of uh, how Wizards might play this game is to, and we've seen this in prior sets, is to tighten the supply up front and then widen it about a month or two down the road um, to drive you know, hype and demand around the set up front, and then, but make sure that they actually ship the, to the revenue level that they were hoping for. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had relatively... You know, I wouldn't say it was dead easy, but it wasn't hard for me to track down $225 boxes. Um, I managed to secure three cases at $900 a case earlier this week, and the only reason I got access to those was because I was dealing with a, a, a retailer that had access through their distributor to order more than they thought they could sell locally. What's MSRP on a box? On the, I haven't actually looked. It should be $240, I believe. 240. And so I was. And you said you got boxes at 220? Uh, 225 a box, yeah. So the. Jeez, below MSRP? On, on eBay, the first couple of boxes I bought just to make sure I had some, like maybe two weeks ago, I got it 230, I believe. Um, they had spiked as high as 340 as the initial wave of Mythics was released uh, uh, last week and have now settled back in the 280 to 290 range uh, post the release of the final list. So I think that we're going to find that the uh, it's still a bit of a lottery because there a lot of the EV is tied up in a few very uh, expensive cards like Mana Crypt and Jace the Mind Sculptor and uh, Force of Will. Uh, and in, in that case, it's definitely going to be possible to open a few packs locally and feel uh, underwhelmed at what you open. Um, you know, if you, you pull out one of these Onslaught legend, legendary creatures... Um, or a World Gorger Dragon, you're probably not going to uh, be too fond uh, of your <laughs> Eternal Masters experience. But um, I think that that is par for the course, and I don't think we can expect uh, much more out of this kind of a set. Um, this is a, a, about as good as I think it can get. Um, uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that investing in boxes over 250 or so is going to be tough to come out on top of. Um, because let's say you're picking up a box at 275, hoping to flip it later. Um, after taxes and shipping, um, and by taxes I mean like the fees you're going to pay through eBay um, or Amazon, 
um, or TCG player, um, you're you know you're going to have to the box is going to have to be up about a hundred dollars for you, that to really be worth your time. Otherwise, you should just be looking for opportunities to move in on cards that are uh, depressed artificially during the initial uh, bevy of of box openings in in the first week or two, um, and try to play on those opportunities. Um, if you can get boxes at whole at you know the nine hundred a case, two twenty five, two thirty, something south of two two fifty, you might be in a solid position. It's possible that the demand is is high enough for this set that you know by Christmas these boxes are in the three fifty to four hundred dollar range. But it's definitely not guaranteed. I, I am uh, in a position where I would take boxes at MSRP, but I'm really not interested in paying any more than that. You know, if MSRP on a box is, uh, would you say 240, um, you know, uh, if you're buying it for yourself because you want to draft it with friends, I'd be okay with paying, you know, 250. It looks like on eBay they're going for 290 right now, but, uh, given how lukewarm sealed product tends to be and how long it tends to take to appreciate, uh, I would not be eager to pay more than MSRP on this. That doesn't mean you can find it for MSRP. You're telling me that we can. I'm not sure everyone else is having that experience, especially given that on eBay they're completing for 290 but um, uh, I would not be looking to um, dive too deep into this. Uh, simply, you could just end up with a lot of money that's barely moving. And uh, selling sealed boxes back that are taking too long to appreciate is a lot more painful um, than singles because singles are very cheap to ship. Whereas you are going to eat money shipping boxes unless there's been a, a pretty good return on those, um, unless you're selling locally, which can be hard to find a buyer for. So uh, as for sealed boxes, I probably I would not be paying more than MSRP, but I take maybe a couple at that price. Yeah, I mean, historically, I should point out that with Modern Masters 2013, which was you know the lowest supply thus far of these Masters sets, um, I ended up making about between 75 and 90 a box um, selling out at peak demand um, in the winter uh, this past winter having held for about a year and a half um, with modern masters 2 i ended up uh, running the box lottery and just popping my english versions because you know channel fireball was blowing them out at 200 dollars or something recently um, so clearly mm2 was overprinted um, my concern, um, looking at the spectrum of potential print runs between MM uh, 2013 and 2015, is that since 2015 was clearly overproduced versus demand, and there is in theory more demand for modern cards than there would be for legacy and vintage cards, in, despite the fact that it also targets EDH, um, my worry is that a lot of these cards um, will stay price depressed for longer than the modern staples ever did, um, many of which have rebounded both with 2013 and 2015. Um, just because there aren't, there isn't that much organized play for those formats going on these days that will drive, um, you know, continued demand. And I certainly don't buy, now that I've seen the full set, I don't buy the argument that Eternal Masters was designed to reinvigorate Legacy. That's just foolishness. Um, there aren't enough really key cards for Legacy that would change the overall price of getting in on Legacy, where the barrier to entry has always been and will continue to be the um, reserved list dual lands. Um, you know, great, yeah, great. Yeah. You can, you can get access to Jace for $20 less a copy. Okay. So that, you know, your, your Delver deck in legacy is, you know, 70 bucks cheaper, but you still have to buy a bunch of volcanic islands. So I really don't see, you know, some guy drafting eternal masters at his local game shop once. Cause it's probably going to cost him 40 or 50 for the draft. He's not going to do that very many times. Um, he's going to pop a Jace and then suddenly say, okay, now I'm going to commit two or $3,000 to Delver. There's no way. 
Um, so I really don't see Eternal Masters fulfilling um, that unstated objective that people assumed, um, driving people into the arms of Legacy. Um, and it doesn't surprise me, frankly, because I don't think Wizards has any intent of rein, uh, reinforcing or reinvigorating Legacy. Everything they've done in the last couple of years has expressed the opposite, that they would like to move people closer and closer to um, constructed uh, formats like Standard, um, to a lesser extent Modern, and certainly uh, limited formats, all of which drive the opening of new product, um, which is their primary objective. Um. When I when I look at the full spoiler, I don't see uh, legacy legacy subsidy kit in a box. I see uh, cards for non sanctioned formats that also happen to be in legacy. So a lot of cube cards, a lot of EDH cards, uh, a lot of stuff of that nature that kind of overlap with Legacy. Legacy. So they sell it as Eternal Masters in this sort of Legacy vintage twist. Uh, but I, there are a lot of cards in there that strike me as uh, mostly interesting for cubers and commander players. Uh, you know, Maelstrom Wanderer, for instance, is very clearly not a Legacy card, but it's a huge EDH card. Yeah, I mean, as a branding professional, if I'm looking at this set and I'm considering the demographics, I would pinpoint the demographics as experienced Magic players who are interested in owning cool cards they couldn't previously afford. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it yeah. really, and it really just seems to play out like that, um, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Um, that that's when looking at this pile, th- this set as a whole, that's the message I'm getting. Yeah, and um, you know, on a slightly different note, because I want I want to mention this. Uh, a lot of the discussion has not been necessarily either what's in the set, but what's not in the set. Um, so I'm, again, I'm changing gears here a little bit. Sorry if, if you had more to say on the topic, but um, some other cards I want to draw attention to that didn't show up were Glimpse of Nature. Um, and we saw a big Elves push in Eternal Masters. So uh, that being a key part of Elves, uh, we may see some pressure on that. You know, that's only like 15 to $20 right now, which um, I could see doubling based on this. Query and Ranger. Uh, it did not show up and currently really only has its visions printing, and that was is very good, uh, Elves. Flusterstorm didn't show up. Uh, Counterbalance, Reanimate, uh, Umuzawa's Jite, Show and Tell didn't show up, uh, which is not on the reserve list, believe it or not. Although Show and Tell would be an interesting inclusion in Conspiracy. Uh, that I could actually show, see showing up in Conspiracy because there it is uh, much more amusing in a four-player game than a competitive game. So if you're looking for cards that did not show up, sort of the uh, read-between-the-lines type of concept, those are some cards that uh, I would have my eye on at the trade tables tonight. Yeah, I was surprised to see that Umazawa's Jite didn't make it into the set. I mean, it's the mo- po- one, probably in contention for one of the most busted limited cards of all time, um, a card nobody wants to play against. Um, but I thought at Mythic it would have been fine, and I was, you know, I can't see where else they would ever bring it back unless we're going back to Kamigawa this year and they're going to save it for a reprint there, um, which seems weird because they're not going to put it into standard. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, there's no, there's no way because then it's in modern too, and uh, people yeah, will yeah. go. So, anyone who tells you GTA is fair has never cast GTA. Yeah, th- so that's crazy. Forget, forget I even said that. There's no way it's getting reprinted even <laughs> if we're going back to Kamigawa. So it it's, seems strange to me that we're not seeing it here because I don't see, know where else we would ever get it. Um, but, you know, given that it's only played in a couple decks in Legacy, maybe they just figured, and, and it has had a promo printing before, maybe they figured that it just wasn't necessary. Um, 
I just noticed that there's some really cool new Nicol Bolas art on Deep Analysis. That has to be the default art for that card now. Um, and the quote's pretty sweet, too. No fact escapes me. Why do you think you can? Very nice. I was I was blown away by the art. You know, I've been fairly critical of the art in uh, Magic sets for a while now. I think they kind of lack a lot of, uh, a lot of character. They're very... Uh, very sanitized, I'm going to say, um, in contrast to the Wild West days of Magic where you had stuff like um, Stasis, which you can tell me was not good art, and I won't argue with that, but it was interesting and memorable. Um, but I was, and I and I know I'm not alone on this, is I've been very impressed with all the different art that has showed up in, and it, not just the, the, the art, but the distinction and the variety. Uh, that one that showed up uh, was it Field of uh, Field of Souls is awesome looking, and we haven't seen anything like that in a in a recent Magic set in quite a while. So I was very glad to see that show up. Um, several pieces of Trius Nielsen art, which we don't get enough of. So I like that they kind of moved away from the style guide uh, a little bit more in this set. And as for the Goblin Char Belcher, it, it's amusing. Like you know, you can see the the Black Lotus and stuff popping out of the can, and it's very referential and funny, but I'm just not a big fan of, like, the goofy goblin uh, type of aesthetic. And, you know, for what it's worth, to, 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 uh, to serve as a frame of reference for where I come from, I also think all those cutesy art things they do for Star City are all awful. Every single one of them, I don't like them. Yeah, I, I get it. You don't like the cutesy, wacky stuff. The, uh, the You must be into the Maelstrom Wanderer art, though. That's uh, pretty sweet. Yes, that is great. That is real good. That and I, I I like him a lot. I think that art is very nifty looking. The uh, the new duplicate art particularly great. Um, anyone who ever cast ticking gnomes back in the day has got a ha, had to have a little chuckle when they saw the new art for that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot. There's a lot of good choices made here. I thought it was very interesting that the only dual land cycle in this set is uh, a replay of the the gain one life coming to play tapped lands. <laughs> I mean that that is a weird pairing for a set called Eternal Masters. It's like pick the most underwhelming dual land cycle you can imagine and jam it into the set. Uh yeah, that is very clearly strictly for limited concerns and not at all uh because they they are eternal lands. You know, this conversation comes up every time. Uh, the first Modern Masters came out. Are they going to put Zendikar on Salt Fetches in? The second Modern Masters came out. Are they going to put Fetches in? Eternal Masters came out. Are they going to put Fetches in? Are they going to put Cycle A or Cycle B or whatever? Like, you know, never say never, but Wizards has not put a meaningful land cycle in any one of these products yet. They haven't put them in any of the Commander products. They haven't put them in any of these Masters products. They haven't put them in Conspiracy. Don't expect them to do that. Uh, if they do, here's how I'm going to put this. Don't expect it to happen, and if it does, it's okay to be blindsided by it because they have shown us no indication that they're going to do that, and land cycles sell product, so they're going to put them in standard almost every time. Um, so I just, I'm hoping that the next one of these that comes around, I don't have to listen to months of people talk about whether the budgets are going to be in there because they're not. They're just not doing it, you guys. I mean, I think that here... We have a set where a lot of the focus was on cards where the demand for the card is not particularly high um, in a broad-based fashion. And because of that, um, they, could they, they can't really afford to jam things like modern playable fetches into a set like this. Um, it's also worth noting that with Modern Masters 2017, presumably coming next year, they fit perfectly there alongside cards like Abrupt Decay and the Liana um, Snapcaster Mage. Um, you know, 
the the list is relatively light for fresh targets for a modern master set next year um and if we're going to do a triple gp again and have that you know the, the doubling of inventory effect that that has. Because, you know, one of the big differences between Modern Masters 2015 and Eternal Masters is the lack of three giant, you know, five to 8,000 player GPs worldwide, which, which is a big factor in how there's not going to be as much product floating around. Um, if we get those GPs back again for the next Modern Masters release, then the um, number of copies of the Zendikar fetches that get printed would be high enough to satiate most of the demand um, and actually knock some some you know dollar value off of their prices, which is what everybody will be looking for. Well, I still would not bank on them showing up, but time will tell. I mean, Wizards is very good at making me look stupid. Every time I say they will or won't do something, they immediately do it. Um, so okay, won't uh, won't go too far deep on that. Oh, and I just and just and also just to put this to bed too. Um, there was about twenty five minutes on Twitter this week where Evan Irwin said that he had heard a hot rumor, and by hot rumor, I mean he read it on Reddit that Wizards was going to announce a new constructed format uh, around the time the Eternal Master spoiler was fully released. Um, and everyone got really excited for a little while and chatter, blah, 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 new format, what will it look like, so on and so forth. And then Aaron Forsyth tweeted and said, that's not happening. And uh, I don't have the exact text in front of me, but he said, we're not doing it, and we have no plans to do it at this time. And I want to key in on that second part of this because he said, we are not intending to do it uh, at this time. And what that means is that we are, if there is a new constructed format coming, we are years away from it. Because from the time that Wizards decides, even starts thinking about something like that, to the time that it happens is probably at least two years. Um, so, I mean, really any of these like new constructed format rumors are just totally debunked until probably close to 2020 is when I would actually be willing to entertain those a little bit more realistically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's dangerous for us to read too far into, you know, any single sentence on Twitter, um, especially given that it's to their benefit to add that last part to the sentence at this time, just to leave the door open for, you know, them to do whatever they want down the road. But I would, I would think that this, the discussion of format management is both persistent um, and, and active within Wizards, um, that they've already explored many different options. Um, in their go ultimate penultimate goal of increasing sales, and that for them for them to say we don't intend to introduce it at this time only means they haven't made a, a concrete decision about when that will happen. Um, I think it will happen. We should not assume that it won't. Um, there's a lot to be said for a version of Legacy that does not include reserve list cards, just from the simple fact that they are they are the limiting factor for that format. Um, I don't think that that necessarily means that that format will be a good format. Um, I'm way past that debate. But I think that um, before you start accumulating a whole bunch of dual lands over the next couple of years, you should definitely be uh, thinking through what the options are for Wizards and considering that they have been directing eyeballs away from older formats in general, which it does not have me excited about investing money in anything other than the kind of iconic vintage level cards like Black Lotus, Moxes, etc. Um, you know, black bordered duels are, are probably okay. Um, because these things just have exceedingly low supply. Um, the demand is largely from collectors as opposed to players. Um, 
and and so they're a little safer. But white bordered revised dual lands, that's not something I'm interested in acquiring anymore. Well, and I want to stress here that I was not encouraging people to go out and buy um, reserve list cards of that nature because I have been one of the loudest uh, voices in saying that Legacy will die or die what can be considered a death of something like that and that it is not uh, sustainable. So I'm not saying you should invest in Legacy. Um, and and a new just that a new Eternal format would of any stripe would cannibalize modern in the short term or in the, it would cannibalize modern at this time. Um, so I just don't expect to see something like that occur uh, of that nature. You know, don't, no, no reserveless legacy is not on anyone's radar at this point, at least not within wizard. So it was not an approval to go buy eternal reserveless cards, just um, an eternal, a, a long, a, Format that encompasses a great many formats would eat modern, and Wizards does not want to cannibalize modern. So that is not the direction they would go. If anything, all they would do is provide official support for Popper so that people could run it at FNM. That would be the first thing I would expect. Sure, that's sensible. So the um, I think my summary of my take on, on Eternal Masters is that uh, boxes are going to be harder to make money on than, than some people think. Um, but... Uh, there is an outside chance that supply drives up faster than that I am expecting, and they end up being $400 boxes by Christmas. Um, I think the other op- possibility is that they settle in between 250 and 300 um, if the spigot is left on for a little longer um, and boxes uh, end up lying around in distributor warehouses. The overall EV of the set is uh, better than I expected, not as amazing as it would ha- could have been if something like port had been included. Um, and because of that, I think that you are about value neutral, um, you know, randomly buying and, and opening a box. Don't think that's likely to, to work out as well as, say, um, opening uh, a box of uh, Modern Masters and Modern Masters 2015 would likely to be turnout. Um, one thing that we didn't touch on, though, Travis, is that this set is also printed in Japanese and in Chinese. Um, oh, and, yeah. and the Japanese boxes were very profitable for me, even on Modern Masters 2015. Um, I was up about 100 bucks a box um, uh, after all of my fees and expenses. So uh, it's interesting, worth pointing out to people that try, if you have a friend in Japan that can track you down a box of this stuff, that is a favor you should call in because the Japanese LGSs are not allowed to sell overseas, um, big or small vendors alike. Um, and last time we had GPs that had judges that got paid in product. And that was where I sourced um, my boxes from last time was tracking down Japanese uh, or American, Japanese speaking American and Canadian judges who had traveled to GP Tokyo to um, judge that event and came back with boxes. Um, those people don't exist this time. So I don't know how the heck I'm going to get my hands on a Japanese box other than scouring eBay every day. I am telling you, I'm looking at eBay while you're talking. There are zero listings for Japanese Magic Eternal Masters, um, and zero zero active and zero sold. So eBay has no records of Magic Eternal Eternal Japanese Eternal Masters. I mean, there um, there, there hasn't been a lot of chatter about this, but we're talking about <laughs> foil Japanese Mana Crypt. Yeah, wait, Force of Will. Foil Japanese Better Art Force of Will, like. Yeah, that's that's crazy. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I mean, there's going to be like none of those, right? But it doesn't matter. Like the box, oh, God, what are those boxes going to be? Are they going to be five hundred US? Five hundred dollars, yeah. And 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 I will snap off a five hundred dollar box and hold it for five years, um, on the assumption that within two years it probably is worth a thousand dollars. Well, I actually have a friend in Japan that I am going to go message when we're done. <laughs> yep, and, and, and I too will be reaching out to my contacts, and everyone else should as well. That is my pick for how to make the easiest money on modern on Eternal Masters is to track down Japanese product. Um, the Chinese, I don't know about. Um, traditionally, that's not a language most Ugh. people are chasing. Um, but those, you know, those could end up being very rare if that print run is the lowest of the three languages. So. Uh, is it Chinese typically larger than American I, or English? I would imagine that it's uh, larger. No, I mean, China, China obviously is a much larger market, but I think the magic market is much smaller than the U.S. Um, the real question is whether it's smaller than Japan. Um, my guess is yes, but um, especially since it's a specialty product that's LGS only um, and not for mass release. But I don't know that for a fact and don't have any um, touch points to be able to reference. So... Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because we we didn't we didn't get Chinese Modern Masters 2015. This is the first time uh, a Masters set has been printed in Chinese. So yeah, who knows? I, I'm there. May, I will say this: there may be money to be made on Chinese Eternal Masters, but it won't be me, and I have no interest in figuring that out. I think that that is unless you are very familiar with that market. I would not be. I would stay away from that. I think you could get burned on that if you're not careful. Um, but there you go. So the best way to profit on Eternal Masters is to make friends with somebody that lives in Japan and get them to buy you boxes. Uh, <laughs> um, That's a wrap for this week, folks, on uh, our longest episode of uh, Pretty Long MTG Finance. Um, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. How about you, Travis? Uh, yeah, Travis Allen. Uh, I write every Wednesday on MTG Price. Uh, I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I show up occasionally on the Cartel Aristocrats with some of the other MTG Price writers. And I would like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service uh, located at mtgprice.com. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Uh, glad to be back after our brief hiatus. Hopefully we can be a little more consistent through the summer. Um, and that brings us to the end of episode 17. So I was glad to be back here with you, James. Yep. It was a great episode and we'll talk to you guys next week. Mm-hmm.